Hello again, everyone. I'm Matt Lachlan. Welcome to Pirates Talk, presented by Jag One Physical Therapy. On Wednesday night, the Hall had a huge come-from-behind road victory over St. John's. It improved the team's record to 14-9 overall, 7-5 in the Big East. Pirates have now won seven of their last nine games and are starting to hit their stride. They face another must-win on Sunday at home against DePaul. It's a team they should defeat, but they can't look past. If they can beat the teams they should and pull off a win or two versus Creighton and Xavier at home, this team should edge themselves into the NCAA picture, which would be a mighty accomplishment in head coach Shaheen Holloway's first season. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Bob Lee, a friend and mentor, to discuss some of the key issues in college sports and to chat about the Pirates as they continue to fight for that potential NCAA berth. As one of the most impactful journalists of our time, there's no one better to offer an opinion on the name, image, and likeness endeavor, wild, wild west of the transfer portal, and what it all means for college athletics. We'll also discuss the Center for Sports Media at Seton Hall, an endeavor near and dear to Bob's heart, the start of which was the result of a generous donation on Bob's part. I should mention that I conducted this interview in the backyard of Bob's home in Key West, Florida. No dummy am I, nor he, so you might hear the sounds of planes approaching the Key West airport and the crowing of roosters. Yes, Key West is the home to thousands of chickens who freely roam the streets. It's not as bad as it sounds, kind of cool actually. At any rate, the interview, with some mild interruptions along the way, is next after this message from Jag One Physical Therapy. A proud sponsor of Seton Hall Athletics, Jag One Physical Therapy gets you back to the life you love. Voted the number one physical therapy company based on first-class patient care and outcomes, Jag One Physical Therapy is invested in your full recovery. Your preferred in-network rehabilitation provider, Jag One Physical Therapy, has convenient locations throughout New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. For more information and to find a location near you, visit www. Jag1PT.com. Bob Lee, always good to see you. We should let our listeners know that we are conducting this outdoors in Key West, Florida, where you make your home for a good part of the year. I'm down here with my wife on vacation, and we met you and your wife, Barbara. We had dinner last night with another couple, good friends of ours, Greg and Colleen. So thanks for the beautiful weather. It's not a cloud in the sky. Temperatures are 75. This is the best conditions I've ever done an interview in. You can only hope the iguanas are going to leave us alone for the next several minutes. I love it, sitting out here by the pool, and I'd love to talk Seton Hall stuff. Absolutely great. And we will touch upon Seton Hall, some basketball things, your philanthropic endeavor of the Center for Sports Media and what's happening there and what will happen in the future. It's off to a great start. But let's start on the sports side of things. Your career at ESPN, 40 years in the anchor desk, of course, founding Outside the Lines, Emmy Award winner, DuPont award-winning show, George Peabody award-winning show, one of the premier journalists of our time, sports journalists of our time. I probably should take that adjective out. Journalism is journalism. My point is I want to talk a little bit about some topics that are front and center in college athletics these days. And uh, the first to me is the NIL, name, image, and likeness. I should say this just as a preface. I've always been, or for the most part, I've been a supporter of athletes being able to trade in on their goods, so to speak. But the rules weren't there, and now finally through lawsuit and so on and so forth, they were given that right. But now that the genie is out of the bottle, I don't know where we're going. What do you make of what 
NIL is all about, the impact it's had already, and looking down the road, let's talk a little bit about where we're headed. Like opening a fortune cookie. Be careful what you wish for. And we got it. Um, the NCAA is irrelevant. I still don't know what Charlie Baker thinks he can do in coming in and to a moribund organization. Uh, like you, I always felt that the athletes needed to realize something because they are the programs. But what we have now is absolutely the Wild West. I don't know how it could ever be policed. It is the, uh, it, listen, I'm, I'm a practicing Roman capitalist, all right? I love capitalism. It's been good to me. I, 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 I believe in the system. But this is the rawest form of capitalism. We're watching left, right, and center. So the pressures are incredible. And there are schools, and you know, it's a matter of scale. When Ryan Day, it was about a year and a half ago, came out at Ohio State and said, I needed 19, this is, and this number probably is higher now, $19 million to care, take care of my team. Holy bleep. Right. So, I mean, it was, I think it was a courageous thing to do to put it out there on the record. But it's reshaped a coach's job. It has reshaped how a school interacts with its athletic department. And I think for society, the most important thing that we need to ask, it's, it's really getting to the raison d'etre of a university. So are we rooting for laundry? Is there a sense of school tie and pride the way we used to have it? I don't think so. I think we have to reorient ourselves. But schools have to ask themselves, if you bought into the now discredited idea of amateur athletics in the past, are you buying in as an academic institution in pursuit of the truth to this absolute raw capitalism where people come and go at will? Uh, it's rotisserie sports come to life. Um, I don't want to be the old guy on the lawn saying, get off my lawn, kids. I kind of like things the way it used to be because you could get your arms around a season, around the hot teams, around the hot coaches, the trends, the stories. And you can't now, but you cannot begrudge the athletes. What would listen? When I started covering the NCAA tournament in 1979 and 80, that that first season, it was a sporting event. Now it's a cultural event. The uh, I did the first two shows where we unveiled the bracket, all right, and it was faxed to us in Bristol, Connecticut, from Kansas City. It was no big deal, of course. Now those are the launch codes that you guard with your life, and you make a two-hour show out of it. And the value of those television contracts are measured in multi-billions of dollars. And I get it. And the young men and women should need, need to, to see some of that. But at the same time, it's, it's changing the nature of the academy, capital A. Uh, and I think we had need to, as a society, ask ourselves that question, as well as how is, how is a coach going to keep a roster together and manage the, the egos and considerations? It's a brand new world. It really is, and we're just starting to understand where it may lead us. Uh, you know, you mentioned the NCAA, and and I agree, its its future is clearly in doubt. The sixty five or so big schools in athletics have taken control. The consolidation of conferences that it's been coming for several years now. It's existed for a while, but now it's ratcheted up. When USC and UCLA go and join the Big Ten. All tradition is thrown out the window, but it is the pursuit of that dollar. And again, this is America. It's capitalism. But you wonder what that means for those teams who are just below that 65 or, and we'll touch upon it, a school like Seton Hall that is not a football school but can play and has played at the very highest level in the basketball world. So what are we going to see in college athletics? Might we see something like in Europe where there'll be a cat, they are academies and those who want to pursue a professional career, take that route. And the schools are there just to educate and provide an outlet for its students in the athletic world. Well, two, two things you, you hit it on the head, all the power and the money flows from football. 
Seton Hall is not a football school. I can remember us winning the club football championship in November, December of, of, of 1972. The game was recorded in black and white. Edison was on camera, guys. Uh, I was there doing, honest to God, this part, though, I did the sideline reporting for WSOU. So it all flows from football. And you see some leagues, you see some some players now coming out of high school and making that move to one of the the uh, you know the academies or one or there is a, a league or an organization that will pay you a hundred thousand um, dollars. And think back fifteen years, we our our hair would be on fire at this. And so now you got to look at this, but you also have to ask yourself if you're eighteen years old and you possess this great skill and you've been told and you have realized you've had this great skill for at least three or four years prior, you've marked yourself as an elite athlete. Is the advice that you're receiving from everyone in your family and all the people around you and associated with the businesses of basketball, is it in your best interest? I just hope, because I know there's an infrastructure at the university to make sure the coaches are taken care of. And the those questions I raised about the, the raison d'etre of the university, but what is existing to ensure that the young men and women who are making these major life-changing decisions, 17, 18, 19 years of age, are, are making the best decision. I mean, if Matt, somebody came to you, you're a hell of a broadcaster and broadcasting was as highly prized in our society as, as basketball skills. And you were 18 and here's, here's a seven figure name, image, and likeness deal. And you're 17 or 18. You know, are you going to spend that money wisely? Are you going to invest it wisely? Are the people around you going to be giving you the best advice acting in your interest? Boy, I hope so. I hope so. Uh, what are we going to see? It's going to be, it's going to change year by year. Nobody knows. I'd be lying if I said I knew what it would look like in two years. Nobody knows. I do know we have roosters here on the Keys, though. You can hear them. Well, I was going to bring that up, and, and we may be uh, having to pause a little bit, or maybe we'll just talk through. We're a little bit near the, the, the airport. Everything is near everything in Key West. It's such a small spit of land. But what is the story with the roosters? There are roosters everywhere in in this place. They, uh, they're here. You're not supposed to bother them, so we don't bother them. Uh, there's one around here that... Four in the morning, regardless of where the sun is in the sky, feels like exercising its constitutional right to free caulking there and and clacking. So, uh, but uh, and you, you know, you have you, if you're driving a car or a bicycle, if you've rented a bike here in town, you see them crossing the street. Why does the chicken cross the road? Because she's got like three or four chicks with her. Mm-hmm. You got they get the right away. Well, it makes this place even more unique. More Rustic, that's a good word too. But I wonder why it is, and uh, there, there we go. Listen, there's not enough. There's, there's not enough room in this podcast for three, so we'll just ask the rooster to keep it down a little bit. But uh, we look at football, and we understand the physical maturity that it takes to play on a higher level. And so we've never really considered a, an athlete leaving high school and playing in the NFL. Basketball, it can be done. It's been legislated against, and we've gone back and forth there. But that seems to be the one sport where everyone says, oh, my goodness, how can you allow this young guy to go to the NBA? Same age kids are drafted in baseball. The conditions, as we've come to find, and there's lawsuits being thrown out against minor league baseball because, or against minor league baseball because of the small amount of money and the long hours you put in, et cetera. It can happen in a lot of other sports, never mind other pursuits, the arts and business, et cetera. So why do we get so upset about it, do you think? Well, I think our unease with it, what such unease that existed, I think is frittering away. I mean, I, I think the years, uh, 
necessary, the year separation from graduation to the NBA is about, if it's not done away with, it's about, I, I don't live on the edge of the news anymore, but I, I think everyone recognizes you should have the right as an 18 year old high schooler uh, to come out and, and immediately ply your trade because there are those that have that skill. Um, and I, so I, I think we've all grown up a lot. We've grown up an understanding it's not the end of the world. You know, amateurism, by the way, was a concept introduced to British society because the upper classes did not want to mix with the tawdry lower and middle classes. Um, it, there was no vast, elevated, noble pursuit. So that's why we had amateurism. It carried through. So I think kids, should, young men and women should, should have that right. And, and I, I think we've come to accept it. I, I agree. Um, I just finished a book called We Don't Know Ourselves by Fintan O'Toole, and it's his memoir, and it starts in his birth year, 1958, and it takes through Ireland's changes that he has seen. And he talks about the unknown known, the wink and nod, and there was a lot of that going on in sports, and we were upset, quote unquote, but it was because there are many people and institutions who benefited by the old way. And yet we knew that there were opportunities for baseball players to leave at 18 and go play in Bend, Oregon and try to apply their trade and make it to the major leagues. And then we romanticized that path while many fell by the wayside and didn't go back to college, et cetera. So you're right. I think we're more comfortable with it. It just acknowledges what we always knew kind of existed. Yeah. But at the same time, those who of us who are wistful enough to remember uh, four-year players in basketball, Getting to know your team, senior night, all of that, uh, you're, that's not happening. Virtually nowhere, really. And you know what? You have to acknowledge that in 1989, and we're very proud at Seton Hall going to the Final Four, we had a player at Andrew Gaze, though, that came in for a one-year shot. And the school's taken some criticism over the years and retrospectively over that. Whether it's justified or not, you'd have to go back and revisit it. So it, it, is, it, it can be a muddled situation. I Listen... Uh, I remember, and you remember, being in school, and you know, you're rooting for the guys and the girls wearing the shirts, not necessarily the shirts themselves. And now the season begins, you got to like relearn the roster, relearn the rotation, which is nothing compared to what you know the coaches have got to do. They got to find the individuals, and they work the waiver wires. And um, I think eventually you might see some some legal construct, whether it's a Frankly, I don't know why the players don't unionize. I mean, we've heard the stories, and I think it was UNLV, how the players were this close. I'm holding my fingers about a half inch apart, folks. This close for, for the tip-off of a might have been the Duke final in 1990 um, from not coming out of the locker room unless they got some concessions, which would have been a, a you know 30 some odd years ago, would have been a great moment. Everyone would have been crazy over this because it would have been Jerry Tarkanian's team and he's running rebels and that outlaw school, end quote. But they would have forced us to confront this issue a lot sooner. What do you think about and, and what's the impact of the transfer portal? I mentioned to you before we recorded this, I don't envy coaches. You've got to protect your assets, hope that the player that you've recruited is not upset, that you've limited his minutes because someone is out playing him, but you think there's potential, you want to develop that. And at the same time, you got to worry about him leaving. You're looking over your shoulder the other way saying, well, that guy might help us over there. And you've got to poach him from that school. Uh, this one can, the money thing I kind of get this drives me crazy. It's the Wild West. Yeah. Look, we've known for years that players do not commit to schools in basketball. They commit to coaches. And there's that, that relationship that we see. 
um, which is now just, as you mentioned, totally, totally complicated by the introduction of money and the introduction of the unknowns. I don't know how coaches do it. Um, I think <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of guys and women near the retirement age might say, you know, time to become an administrator <laughs> and sit at a desk and think about this because doing it, your head's on a swivel. I mean, you're, you're recruiting, it seems, 24-7-365, if not actively recruiting, effectively recruiting you and your staff. And by the way, at the same time, you're trying to coach your way through a season. Um, and it, I don't think it necessarily helps the quality of play, what we're seeing. When you see teams say, when you see them in game 12, that's not the team. Look, you're always going to have the progression in, in, in the development of a team. But I think more so than, than, than before, I think now you see that that learning curve is a lot steeper for schools. When, when, when you know, a group of youngsters and young men and women start playing together, never met each other to a large extent. Say 70% of the roster is new, and that's not an unusual number. I mean, it's, it's, even if it's 50%, it's going to take a month and a half to get that groove, develop the relationships, that sixth sense of where you are without the ball, all of that. Um, the quality, you know, the quality of ball. I, you know, just e watching the hall this year. I mean, they're playing much better now with this new cast of players than they were early on. It's only natural. Um, you just kind of wish, man, if they played together all summer, practiced together quietly all summer, and did whatever they could do legally all summer. And by the way, what's the NCAA going to do? They've got a pop gun, and there's nothing in the pop gun. Um, it would have been nice to have had that symmetry, that that schematic working all season. Well, we are seeing some of the benefits of that. And I, I kind of contradicted myself when I said it drives me crazy. And it does because you don't know who's coming and who's going. And at the same point, I do support the athletes, right, to find a place that makes them happy. If you're leaving a high-level school to go to another one because you're chasing the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, that might not be what you should do. But if you want to move because a coach has left, because you're not finding the environment in that community to your liking, because you just want to change, uh, you should have that right. But it has changed what, what I know. Yeah. And I agree with everything you just said. But there's one word of the English language you did not employ. And I don't blame you for not employing it. It's education. It's not even in the mix. And it gets back to the question, as I think, that society's got to uh, confront uh, with education being the the, the raison d'etre of the academy, these universities, these schools, all the research and goes into it. Um, how do you reconcile what's happening now? This this rampant, naked, blessed capitalism, people getting their due, with the fact that uh, these are not amateur athletes. They're not they're, there's not necessarily an allegiance to the school that will grow through time. It may be there for eighteen months, if that. There's a lot to digest here. You would be able to answer this better than me, but it appears from the outside looking in, you're busier maybe than when you were working because you're very active in a lot of different endeavors. You stepped down, I guess, a little over three years ago Actually, from ESPN. Uh, my, last, my last day on the air, I took a sabbatical, was 2018, so we're coming up on five years this year. Wow. And, you know, I miss the people, uh, but I haven't been to a meeting today. And I've, but the emails I've sent are my emails not responding to somebody else's. So it's been a good day. Well, and you have kept busy. And the one thing we do want to talk about and spend some time before we end the podcast is the Center for Sports Media at Seton Hall. Uh, through a generous philanthropic gift that you made to your alma mater, they were able to springboard this program. It has gained traction. It continues to gain traction. First off, what was the genesis? What was the thought when you sat down and said, how can I make an impact? Why this and why in this manner? Um, 
It's pretty simple. And I spoke to this at our gala at Chelsea Piers back in September, that when I came into school in 1972, uh, I had an academic scholarship from Seton Hall for $1,000 a year. That was a that it's a lot of money, period, even now, 50 years. Oh, did I just say that? It's going to be a misprint 50, 51 years later. But but for the but for the want of, of Seton Hall's financial assistance, academic-based scholarship, I wouldn't have been at the school. I would not. And I owe so much of what I've been able to achieve professionally to my time at the Hall, at WSOU, the friendships, the things I learned, the people I interacted with. And I, as I was starting to think about, you know, doing something that would leave a bit of a footprint in the profession, uh, the best thing to do is is certainly to help people who want to come into the profession and doing it as you look around, and I have to tell you, Matt, how everything has changed, how the paradigm has changed, how the standards have changed, um, how the opportunities have multiplied for young people to do their own storytelling, their own truth-telling, their own reporting. Uh, we, we need to further enrich the student experience. And so I approached the school. We very receptive, uh, President Joe Nyer and, and uh, uh, Provost uh, uh, Passerini and everyone was, and Dean Robinson, extremely cooperative to work with. Uh, it's been about, I guess, about 11 months now since we uh, hired Jane McManus as our executive director, outstanding, former colleague of mine, uh, and did similar work at Marist College and is just uh, hit the, the ground running. And building on the success to give our students the opportunity to interact with leading media professionals, to have some mentorship, to have internships, to be exposed to different ideas, to, to be challenged and to see what professional standards are and to interact with each other and to, for us to learn from them. I, I've met some amazing young people. That's the best part of, of being involved with the Center for Sports Media is, is, is the opportunities I get to speak with the students because they are full of energy and ambition. And a lot of them are Gen 1, as I was when I came to school, first generation in my family to go to college. And I think it fits right into the mission of the school. And we are perfectly based right outside New York City, or New York City's lucky to be only 15 miles from Seton Hall, which is the way I look upon it. Uh, to to grow these opportunities, but as we're sitting here, I mean, look, technology here in my backyard, sitting here on your your little rig that you're able to you know put over your back onto the airplane to come down here, and we can do we can do this messaging anywhere, and that's just part of the way that the media transformation has taken place. And uh, so we we're officially about a year old. We've been doing programs for about the last three or four or five years, and we're growing. And uh, I would just urge folks to keep an eye out in their email inbox. And things having to do with Seton Hall as we move forward, there should be some things happening this spring, I think, that will interest you. Where do you want this to go? You, you outlined what you hope to entail. What, what do you see? Look, 20, 10 years, five years, 20 years down the road. Wow. We're sitting here talking about something else, yeah. but we're going to then circle yeah. back to this. Hopefully, we're still here to be able to talk to each nice. other. I'm, I'm laying the odds. Um, I think, look, we're a school of a certain size and certain resources, and we recognize that. So what we do, we will do well. We will be a boutique. We will be the best wine, by the way, and I love my wine. The best wine is not made. Ernest and Julio make okay wine, but it's not, not the volume that counts. It's the vintage that counts. And I think that we can become a place of leadership in the profession, a place where the important ideas are 
talked about. Just for example, with this past year, I was very proud of the panel that Jane put together uh, as we considered the Brittany Griner question. We did this panel 15 hours before the Russians released her. Uh, we had no impact on that. I'm just suggesting, though, you be to be in the moment on things like that, to have Alex Rodriguez spend five hours. He wanted to spend five hours with our students. Bob Costa spent a whole day on campus a few years ago. Uh, things such as that. Uh, to be a place where leading professionals want to come to share their experience. I, I envision uh, that happening. And, and I what I really envision is that as people come through the center and through the academic programs and the practical programs at the hall, that they too, as you have been doing, and I thank you so much for your assistance, people want to give back because it has a, and you could also invent a way to get rid of the roosters in this town. No, people will want to give back. Um, that, that would be, that would be the icing on the cake. Well, Bob, it's always a pleasure spending time with you, uh, interrupting your lovely paradise here to uh, spend some time with me. I've, treasured our friendship, your mentorship, and I do appreciate your time today. I mean, the best thing in the world is saying it with you down here, you know, far from all the ice. Oh, don't make them, don't make them turn on us, Bob. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's been fun. And, uh, yeah, oh, my gosh, should we go back almost, what, 45 years or so? Yeah, exactly. You wow. walked into the gym, into WSOU Walsh, where there was an Essex County basketball tournament. Uh, you said hello to me. You invited me across to suburban cable vision where you were cutting your teeth beginning your career and the rest as they say is history yeah well it's been great and god bless you and uh, all the work you do and uh, go pirates and that will do it for this edition of pirates talk presented by jag one physical therapy i hope you enjoyed my conversation with bob as much as i did we all should be as lucky as i am to have someone like bob as a mentor Back in the day when i was a student at the hall and working at the student run radio station wsou fm Bob, who had recently graduated, came back for a visit. After a brief conversation, he invited me to work at a relatively new endeavor called TV3, where he was the first sports director. It was the local channel for a company called Suburban Cablevision and was producing local content from high school games to mayor's talk shows to local parades. Talk about being in the right place at the right time. TV3 was an incubator of talent. Bob and Bruce Beck are names you recognize from being on the air, but there was a host, and I mean a lot of men and women, who went on to outstanding, award-winning careers as producers, directors, camera operators, editors, and more. And many of TV3's alumni are still kicking it. Who knows where my road would have led without Bob's invite, but I do know it set me on my path. And for that, I am forever grateful. Bob cared about Seton Hall and its students then, and he continues to support the university's endeavors today. By the way, the Chickens of Key West story goes something like this. When Key West was much more rural than it is today, people raised chickens to eat. When that practice subsided, many chickens were released to the wild. And when cockfighting was made illegal, roosters were set free. And that's why so many chickens exist in the town today. Some people love it, some people hate it. Most just shrug their shoulders and deal with it. As a visitor, I think it's kind of cool. Pirates Talk is available wherever you subscribe to podcasts. I hope you rate the show, leave a comment. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks to another good friend, Pat Christensen, the sound engineer of today's show and the writer and performer of the Pirates Talk theme, whose help is invaluable in the production of the show. And thanks to you for your company. It's very much appreciated. I'm Matt Lockley. Until next time, be safe, be well, and go Pirates. <laughs>